find a realtor who's done this before just because they can point you in the right direction as far as legislation. But then also they, if they're a brokerage that specializes in short-term rentals, they have vendor lists for you. So you have some person to fix your air conditioning and do your, you know, your sewer clean out and all that stuff, a a full vendor list. Um, They have connections to designers and lenders and handyman. And so um, you just get a wealth of information from going with a brokerage and a realtor that specializes in doing this. We are here with Alexa Ferguson, who is a good friend of mine. We used to be colleagues on the FI team here in Denver, Colorado as well. And since then, we have both moved on. We've both graduated or yeah, going on to greener pastures or however you want to say it. Um, Alexa is a house hacker. She is also a investment-minded agent here in the Denver area, specializing in short-term rentals. So that's why we thought we would bring her on to chat a little bit about the short-term rental market here in Denver as far as house hacking and just investing in general. Yeah, excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, so why don't you tell us a little, Ben gave us the intro, but you can go into telling us about who you are, what you do, and how you ended up in Colorado. Yes. So yeah, my name is Alexa Ferguson. I'm a realtor and an investor myself. I work for a brokerage called Good Neighbor Realty that specializes in short-term rentals and vacation homes all over Colorado. So Denver Metro and also into the mountains. I'm originally from Florida and moved out here with my husband for the same reason that I feel like everybody moves to Colorado or majority of people I meet, which is just seems cool. There's a lot of stuff to do there. But yeah, so we moved here just for the activity lifestyle, love to ski, camp, hike, all the Colorado things. And we love it. It's been great. It's a great place to live, great place to invest. So yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, so how kind of, I know that you didn't always or wasn't always in real estate and being an agent. So how did you find that transition and kind of how did you steer yourself into doing short-term rentals here? Yeah. Yeah. So I originally, I was, I used to be in public relations. I did PR for attorneys. I started my real estate investing journey first with my husband and we got into the house hacking game and then we were just brainstorming like what are ways that we can fast track our investing timeline and the best way to do that was to bring in more cash and so we thought what if i just get my real estate license and just do a couple deals a year just to supplement our income and see what happens. So I started doing that and started working with investors who were just like me, had the same goals and trying to do the same things, all trying to get to financial freedom. And then realized it's way more fun, way more fulfilling to actually help people accomplish these kinds of things. And just went that route full time and never looked back. So that's kind of how I got into real estate. And then we are in the process of slowly growing our portfolio as well. That's awesome. Okay, so then I want to hear what is your portfolio? Because you said you started house hacking. Did you start house hacking in Florida and then decide to then try it in Colorado? And do you still have rental properties from back in Florida or is your full portfolio here in Colorado? What does it look like? And give us a rundown of how it's operating and all of that. Yeah. So we have all our properties are here in Colorado. We started 
we got into the whole thing by house hacking because it's just like the easiest way to get into real estate investing requires the most or the least amount of cash out of you. So we started, we didn't have all that much money. We just wanted to start by reducing our expenses. So started house hacking. We originally rented our basement as a long-term rental. Part of that was because it was literally like COVID was starting to be talked about and we were like, we're afraid of this. So we just opted to go with the long-term renter and that was great. We covered about half of our mortgage. And then once COVID restrictions eased a little bit, we decided to switch to an Airbnb in our basement. And suddenly instead of $1,400 a month, we're making $3,000 a month and we're living for free and we're making a good amount of money on top of that while we live there. So that was really like when I got the short-term rental bug, just seeing like how much more you can make off of just this switch. Like all you have to do is furnish the space and suddenly we switch it to an Airbnb and it was good to go. And for that two bed, one bath down there in our basement, it cost us about like $6,000 to do. It wasn't like an enormous investment and it totally changed our financial life. So that was the first one we did and that's how we got the bug. So then we moved out of that house, rented that entire house in Airbnb as one big unit, four bed, two bath. And then we moved to our second house and currently rent out our basement there also as an Airbnb. And I keep saying Airbnb, but it's also on Verbo, <laughs> but short-term rental. And then we also manage, we've had family buy two more properties here. Third one actually is under contract now, which is exciting, but we have family that has short-term rentals here. And so we manage, we did all the setup and we do the management for those two. So manage four Airbnbs in total here. And a fifth one probably on the way. Yeah. That's, That's awesome. so exciting. That's so yeah. exciting. Yeah. I had a couple of other follow-up questions just because the idea of <clears throat> this podcast is developing an investor mindset. And you said you caught the bug. Mm -hmm. And it just made me super excited to hear when you said you were getting $1,400 a month with long-term rents, which that's still a good way of getting passive income. But then to have it more than double once you found an alternative way to have your money grow your wealth, like that must have been an amazing feeling. Now you said you're moving on to your third property in Colorado. And what does your numbers look like on that first house that originally you were just getting $3,000 for the basement? Are you getting significantly more now for that whole house? Yeah. And so it, it essentially doubled and, and it's an average over the course of the year because in Colorado, your peak season is in the summer and then it slows down in the winter months. So on average over the course of the year, we gross about $6,000 a month on that house and that'll spike up to nine or 10 in the summer and then go down to four or something in the winter, roughly. Wow. Um, yeah. And so our mortgage is always covered. We're usually profiting on that house. We got lucky because we bought that when interest rates were low. We got it for $380,000, which is like not possible now anymore to get that low of a price and interest rate. So we cash flow pretty well on that one. Our mortgage is like $2,100. Wow. That's a good one for us. Second one is similar. We got that one for four ninety five. dollars and had a low interest rate. So our mortgage is like $2,500 and the basement makes on average over the course of the year, gross is about $3,000 a month. Yeah, living for free and, and making money on that one too. And I'll say too, like the majority of our um, short-term rental clients, the house will vary by beds, baths a lot. There's a lot 
that goes into it. But on average, they net about like 20 to 50K a year on short-term rentals, which is it's like the range we see people wow. netting. That's pretty crazy. So between, so let's just compare it and talk about, I guess, workloads and differences between, I guess, a long-term rental versus a short-term rental. Mm-hmm. What are, because yes, it's going to gross higher amounts, but some people might talk about the downsides. Is there any, is there people who this might not be for? What's the kind of management level there for you guys? So it definitely requires more work than a long-term rental. First of all, there's a lot more upfront cost and effort. So you have to furnish the property. And so you have to pay for that. You have to put in the time to do that, whether it's you doing it yourself, which I've done. And I feel like I've done my time building furniture for hours and hours every day. And now I go with designers who are a lot better at it than I am. And it frees up my time to do other things. So there's definitely that upfront time money investment. After that, it's it becomes a lot more passive, but you still are fairly involved. So we use management softwares. So let me back up. We, you basically need to get a really great cleaner or cleaning team and a really reliable and dependable handyman. Once you get those two, you can pretty much be fairly hands-off with the property because your cleaners are doing the turnover every time. And if something breaks, you have people to call, whether it's your handyman or a trusted list of vendors that will go and take care of it for you. So I'm not really going to the properties all that much anymore. And then we also have like automation softwares to manage those people. So my cleaners, they are automatically notified when we get a new booking, they accept it. I don't have to send them a schedule every week. So that becomes really hands-off and they get paid automatically through the app. And yeah, that kind of runs itself. Handyman, obviously it's more one-off. And so you have to you know, reach out to them for those things. But I end up just messaging guests from time to time. And there's a lot of like automatic messages that we have in place, but I spend one to two hours a week managing four properties. So it really is not that bad. But you just have to, on top of it, if a guest messages you, the AC went out, you have to respond really quickly to that, those kinds of things. So yeah, it's definitely not as passive as a long-term rental, but you can make it fairly hands-off to where it just went on three-week vacation to Europe and these things ran themselves, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that because I've always been a little bit more hesitant, I guess, on the short-term rental game, but I'm actually just now... I'm turning both of my basement units and my rental and my current house hack into medium term slash short term. Oh, nice. Um, That's awesome. So yeah, going through all the automations and the guest stuff and furnishing, I've assembled all of it myself and everything. Yeah, I know how painful that can be. Yeah. Um, (laughs) The main reason why I've been hesitant, I guess, on it a little bit is A, just because of the short-term regulations, and especially here in Denver, I know it can be ever-changing. I know that we're experiencing that with some of them. So how do you approach it with clients taking a look at these regulations and if... In worst case, as we've seen in a couple of municipalities, how do you guys kind of bank for worst case scenario if the regulations change or something happens and you can't really do anything? And before you jump into that, can you just go over in general regulations that are in Colorado to be aware of? Because I think people won't know that, that are just getting started into short-term rental. At least I didn't until I started going to good neighbor events and they're like, oh yeah, this is the regulation. So if you could go into all of that, Ben's question, I think that's a huge point when it comes to entering into this market. 
For sure. So it changes from municipality to municipality and we cover all of Colorado now. And so I'll just focus on Denver Metro just to keep things a little bit simple. But basically the places that you can do a non-primary residence short-term rental in Denver right now is unincorporated Adams County. So it'll be Denver City, but Adams County and then Arvada and Wheatbridge and then also Centennial, but it's just, it's not as like lucrative there, but you can still do it there. And so it's what's cool about Denver Metro and having a short-term rental here in regards to legislation is you have a lot of exit strategies. So let's say Wheat Ridge decides, never mind, we don't want anyone to do short-term rentals anymore ever again. Usually they'll have some sort of grandfather system where your license would be grandfathered in for a certain amount of years. But after that, let's say you can't do it anymore. You're in a metro area where people not only come to for vacation and to just explore Denver and the mountains, but people also live and work here. And and that is like a really great exit strategy to have because you can switch to a medium term rental for travel nurses who are still working at these hospitals or a long term rental for just a normal family or a couple or a couple single people who want to be roommates, but you have exit strategies. So that's one reason I really like investing in the in metro areas and Denver Metro specifically because it's also a tourist destination. So you have that demand while it's a short. Yeah. And so I do not recommend somebody getting a house in like the Denver Metro or Denver County. Like what, why is that something you advise against? I just think it's more advantageous to play within the rules. Denver County specifically is really cracking down on this actually. And like, I've heard stories that they'll knock on your door and be like, is there personal property in the closets? You actually live here (laughs) because in Denver County, their regulation is that it has to be your primary residence in order to, sh- to have a short-term rental there. So whatever, a room, a basement, a, a accessory dwelling unit. So I just, there, if you go on Airbnb, there's a ton of short-term rentals in Denver that are full houses. And so people do it and some people just don't care. But I, if I'm going to make an investment and want to get short-term rental level returns on it and really bank on that, then I would prefer to play in zones where it's allowed. The other cool thing about that is a lot of Denver and also a lot of mountain towns are moving toward a capping system. So for instance, Wheat Ridge, they decided that I think it's like 4.5 or something percent of the residential homes there can be short-term rentals. So once those licenses are taken up, there's not going to be any more short-term rentals allowed in Wheat Ridge unless somebody gets rid of theirs. And so by by purchasing in one of those zones and getting that short-term rental license, you're essentially capping your competition. And so you fight that overinflation or oversaturation idea that a lot of people are afraid of in the short-term rental space. So that's why Colorado legislation is tough and it changes city to city. But if you can figure it out and buy in the right place, you really can help the success of your Airbnb by limiting your competition. I think that's really important right there. And I do think a lot of these municipalities will be heading towards that capping system as well. Because I know Arvada in specific and Wheat Rich up until I guess a little bit ago, they had the regulations where they only allowed, I think Arvada was three per owner and then Wheat Rich is two per owner. And I just don't really see that regulation lasting just because how do you define an owner? Can I just put an LLC on each property and then that Mm -hmm. counts as a different owner? So I think that cap is the best way to regulate it. I do. I've seen that up in especially like the foothills, like Coal Creek County, Mm -hmm. that with clients and they just reached their cap. Yeah. 
And then I think Gilpin County is also like nearing their cap as well. So yeah, I think Clear Creek also. Yeah. I had a client who bought up there and they just had to switch theirs to a primary to be able to short term rental theirs. Mm -hmm. There's always ways around it, but it's always fun dealing with those regulations. Yep. And because sure. it's such a new emerging thing, I think a lot of people are getting on this short term rental train. It's uncharted territory. And so these municipalities are just making up the regulations as they come and once they start getting complaints from these neighborhoods of all of the houses on my street are airbnbs and they're they're people throwing parties that's when those complaints come back and then they start mm -hmm. to regulate it or they just maybe some municipalities can think ahead of it and that's why places like denver have this primary residence rule that to me quite frankly makes no sense because it's already so expensive in denver <laughs> But they don't want all of these people that own properties in Denver to just hold on to the properties and make a ton of money on them. They want other people, I think, to be able to access Denver real estate as time continues. Yeah, an interesting thing there, too, is even in more traditional vacation markets, if they are starting to regulate short-term rentals and limit the number that can exist there, it's almost, and the way I see it is it's almost, okay, now I'm, I have an exit strategy because the reason that they regulate is to protect residents there. So it doesn't become overpopulated with short-term mm -hmm. rentals. And then the people who actually live there have nowhere to live. And yeah. so if they're starting to regulate, then I think, okay, if I can't do short-term rental anymore, clearly there's like big residential demand for people to live here long-term and I can actually rent it to a long-term person in the future if short-term rental is no longer an option. Oh. So yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it where it's not, it, it gives hope almost a little bit in my mind <laughs> in these more traditional vacation markets, because I don't know if they're not, if there's no true residential demand, like I think of a place like, I don't know, I, Joshua Tree is coming to mind for some reason. I feel like everybody goes there just for vacation. And if they shut down short-term rentals, which I think they might be talking about doing. Anyway, I don't know, California, I'm not going to go there. Then you're out of luck because that was the only purpose of your property. So yeah. I said an interesting way. I always forget that because I just see it as short-term rental equals more cash flow. And I forget that there are other exit strategies when it comes to investments, especially in real estate that you can convert it into a short-term rental. And if you can be at, like advantageous of taking opportunity of using your short-term rental to really pay down your mortgage, lower that monthly payment, you could do like a recast on your mortgage and it'll automatically drop your monthly payment. Then once that regulation comes out that you can't do short-term rental anymore, you switch to long-term rental and you still have cash flow. Cause at mm -hmm. the end of the day, like, that's really what you want your investment to be doing is to can be continually generating more cash flow as to build your wealth. So I appreciate you bringing up points that I don't even think about because I'm still trying to get my first property over here. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally. And I agree. I think it's definitely the best way to go about it, in my opinion, is short-term rental if you're going to have rental properties because you just make the most money. Then it's do it while you can. And if they change the rules, well, you've thought about that already and you have a solid exit strategy. So you, do you take in, because I know when I'm working with my clients and I'm talking to them and looking into short-term rentals specifically, do you also take into account all of these different exit strategies and make sure, because I always make sure for my clients that, hey, at least... If something happens or you decide, hey, I just don't want to run a short-term rental anymore, mm -hmm. that you're at least not going to lose the property, that it's at least going to cover its debt and it's at least breaking even most months. Is that something that you guys do as well, a good neighbor, just go with the clients and check out the short-term rental aspect? 
Yeah, no, totally. Most of our clients will opt for doing short-term rental just for the cash flow benefits, but it's always exit strategy is always a conversation. It's so important to have thought about that before you dive headlong into short-term rental, just because you never know what's going to happen. COVID came out of nowhere. A municipality can change its rules. It's just yeah. something good to have thought about so that if something happens, you have an exit strategy. But of course, the best option A is always to do the short-term rental. So that's usually where we start and then cross that bridge when we come to it. And I think we do have a perfect example of, yeah, that municipalities can change regulations pretty drastically. Right now, I know that Westminster here in Denver is going through it and adjusting their regulations or making regulations because currently they didn't have anything on the books. And I know mm -hmm. between you and me and a lot of our other past colleagues who have short-term rentals up in Westminster, it's a hot topic right now. And that's just one little hesitant thing to see what's going to happen with them there. And if that's going to put a lot of these investors who put their hard-earned cash into these properties and not going to be able to keep them because they didn't run mm -hmm. numbers or have right. any strategies. Yeah. Have and you in a lot heard of cases, on what they're doing in Westminster at all, Alexa? I think there's still up in the air. They're still deciding, but we're going to those meetings and championing mm -hmm. for short-term <laughs> rental-friendly <laughs> laws. Well, and I will you. say thank just you. as an example too, like Littleton totally changed yep. their rules and they said, never mind, we don't want any short-term rentals. And they still grandfathered in the licenses that were in existence, but I think they just gave them like five years or something like that, that they can still do short-term rentals. So yeah. they, if they decide to outlaw short-term rental after they've made legislation saying you can do it, there'll likely be a lot of pushback from the city and they'll probably end up doing something like what Littleton did, but just as an example. Is it, this is a super hypothetical question, but is it possible, like let's say you have a town like Littleton and they outlaw Airbnb. Is it possible, you think, for them to ever reinstate like more licenses to be in Littleton for short-term rental in the future? Or do you think that once these municipalities make their mind up on it, if this is what we decided, like this is what we're going to stick with. What do you think that, because I've never been to these like yeah. town council meetings for regulating Airbnbs. And if you guys are going to them, at least in Westminster, like I just wonder what does that inside look like? Yeah, it's hard to say. It depends on how the leadership changes in the city and all of that. It's definitely possible that they could flip back to allowing short-term rental. There's tax benefits for cities if they allow it. But I don't know. I think since they outlawed it, I would be surprised if they anytime soon came back and said, just kidding, we're going to allow it. It's just not the the normal trend, I feel like. But who knows? Maybe in the future they could say, we actually want this tourism here and we want the the occupancy mm -hmm. tax benefits and whatever. So who knows? Yeah. Littleton's also an interesting one because yeah, they did choose to outlaw it, but also just a year before that they were, they allowed them. Mm -hmm. They actually changed their regulation twice within two years, basically. Yep. They went from no regulations to allowing it to not allowing it within a two year span. So wow. right. it does show just how quickly things can change, especially in that space. I wanted to also go back to the clients that you're working with, Alexa. And this is obviously coming from me as a lender mind. What do you do like when you're having an initial conversation? How are you qualifying a client? Because Denver real estate market, I think there's a pretty high barrier to entry for most people. 
like how are you qualifying and how are you setting proper expectations for people that want to get their first Airbnb, let's say? So in the Denver and Mountain Air, the the lowest kind of barrier to entry level is about 550k purchase price. And then after that, your top performing properties generally fall within 750 to 1.2 million. And so if someone comes in with a lower price point than that, there's things we can figure out for them. It just won't be as highly performing as that range that I was saying. And then of course, like the down payment really ranges depending on the use of the property. So as you guys know, it's your primary residence, you can put 5% down. If it's gonna be a second home, it could be 10%. If it's gonna be a true investment, it could be 20%. And so the amount of cash you need to put into it can really vary too. But I would say at the minimum end, you wanna have like at least 30K saved up for your down payment. And then you wanna have a furnishing budget on top of that. And that is at like the low end, but that would be like the base buried entry. And then obviously this big range, but that's what we're seeing. <laughs> Cool. I think that's super helpful. And it's also validating for myself because this is like what I'm trying to do. And that down payment budget is available for me, but the furnishing budget is not. And so it's just been like this constant like battle of like, oh, just got to close a few more loans. Once I can get a few more loans, like then I can buy a house. And it's just like this painful thing to have watched when I first started the process and interest rate that I was like quoting for myself was like three and a quarter. And then <laughs> When I finally went forward with a pre-approval and started, like, I put an offer in on one house, it was five and a quarter. And now I'm looking and I'm like, oh, great. Now I'm at like 6.75. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's always a way. <laughs> There's always a way. I know. I just, I'm just like, all right, just like I said, close more loans. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So as far as I guess here in the Denver Metro, if I'm a client coming to you and I'm looking to purchase a short-term rental. Am I, what are my kind of general qualifications for a property? Am I just looking for any house that fits, that's standing and I can just throw some furniture in there and put it up and make six grand a month like you, or is there some sort of qualifications for a property that you guys are looking for to really maximize that short-term rental? Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, like we were talking about, be in a short-term rental friendly area. After that, once we're limited in those areas, we generally look for a three bed, two bath as a minimum to be that top performing property. And then going up from, this is assuming you're not living in there. And then going up from there, you'll only make more money. You want to be in a good location. The areas in the Denver Metro that allow short-term rental, I didn't mention North Glen actually is friendly towards it too. You can do it there as well. But like, I bring that up now because I say you want to be in a good location. Northland does decently well. It's just not as close to like downtown, Red Rocks, those kinds of things as the other areas that we mentioned. Yeah. If you're in Arvada, as close as you can be to Old Town Arvada is like a great thing to think about. But really with the, if you're within like 15 minutes of downtown Red Rocks, those kinds of things, you're going to, you're going to perform really well. But yeah, that three bed, two bath minimum, and then go up from there, short-term rental friendly area near things people want to do. And, and then once we buy properties within those parameters, we always look on AirDNA at the surrounding properties to see how are they actually performing? What's their occupancy like? What's their average daily rate like? And then you can get a good sense of what could this property actually realistically bring in based on what the properties around it are currently doing. I know here in Arvada, at least if I go on to Airbnb, I see at least 
10 to 15 other properties within a, a mile of my house, right? Mm-hmm. What is there anything that I can do as a short-term rental host or with my property to be able to beat out my competition? Because in my opinion, I think a lot of my client's opinion is just, you know, who's actually coming here to Arvada, Colorado to rent an Airbnb and how do I set myself apart from the competition in order to get that guest to stay with me versus somebody else? For sure. Yeah. So this is something that I have learned over the course of my own properties that I didn't know as much in the beginning of how important it was, but it really like furnishing and decor is so important. And on our team, we say that like running an Airbnb business is like 50% real estate, 50% digital marketing, because what it comes down to is people like looking at your photos, looking at your listing and being attracted to it, want to click on it and then they want to book. And yeah, your decor, what people really are looking for when they go to stay somewhere that's not their house is things they don't ordinarily have in their house. So yeah, cute little themed home. I've heard a theme of travel and they have little postcard things everywhere or one one of the people on our team, it's like a Zen house and it's like the theme mm-hmm. is like very peaceful and there's a sauna. And so though that will go a really long way. And then also having some sort of unique amenity will also really separate you. So if you can get like a hot tub in the back or a fire pit, things like that's just something that is different than just throwing Amazon furniture in a house will really set you apart because a lot of the properties aren't managed professionally. And I say professionally by either a company or someone who really knows what they're doing and has looked into it. Just people like throwing furniture in a house and putting it up on your BNB. And so if you are intentional about it and make the investment in decor and furniture and something unique, um, it'll really set you apart and you'll likely perform as one of the top properties in the area. So yeah, like a lot of, most of our clients are the top properties in the area. If you look on AirDNA and you can click top properties, it's mostly our clients, which is pretty cool, but it's because of that. You keep mentioning AirDNA, and I know that you had mentioned kind of software earlier on. What is AirDNA and what is some of the software on top of AirDNA that you're using to manage your property, to be a competitive, that kind of stuff? Because I think mm-hmm. that that's something that, you know, it's a little side topic that you keep mentioning. I'm like, oh, I love AirDNA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So AirDNA, it's a software that analyzes the short-term rental data in your area. And so you can purchase like zip codes or certain areas and it'll tell you like exactly how the properties that airbnbs around the area you're looking at are performing so like you can hover over one and it'll tell you it's average daily rate, it's occupancy, it's projected gross income for the year. You can see like the top prop, the top short-term rentals in that area. And so it really is like really valuable information of really how your property is going to perform and really helps you make accurate projections when you're looking at a property. So it's definitely something that like we use super heavily. And then as far as other softwares management wise, specifically I use Price Labs to manage my pricing. There and like I'll say there's several different softwares that you can use to do these things. But the ones I use is Price Labs. And that's just a dynamic pricing tool that will like auto adjust my prices based on the day of the week, seasonality. If there's a big event, like stuff I would never, you would have to be in there every day, every hour changing it. And so it really optimizes your pricing, which is pretty cool. So like really far out 
my prices right now are super high. I think it's something I would never think to charge, but if it gets booked, it's at that really high rate. That's awesome. And if not, then it slowly reduces my price as it comes closer to the actual day. So that's hugely important in like maximizing your occupancy and your revenue. And then we use, I use software called turnover BNB to manage my cleaners. And so basically there we're both on the app. I have a checklist in there for them to complete when they clean my house and they have to accept it. It auto notifies them when I get a notification on Airbnb, they have to accept the project and then they have to go through and check off everything on the list. And then it automatically pays them once they've marked the project as completed. So that has a huge, yeah, before (laughs) we were like texting screenshots of calendars to our cleaners and then Venmoing people and then it's hard to keep track of. And so that's been a game changer. Then lastly, we use, um, a software called Guesty, and that is just a channel management software. So like I said, we have it on Airbnb and on Verbo. And so if I get a book on Airbnb, it'll block out the dates on Verbo and vice versa. You can set up like auto messages through Guesty and it'll apply it to both platforms. And then it's also a really good place to just get an overview of how, of like your revenue and like your numbers. It synthesizes all that really well. Mm-hmm. Do the other ones like the turnover BND and the AirDNA, do they integrate into Guesty? Because it sounds like Guesty is almost like a management, overall management software. Mm-hmm. The other two kind of specifically handle pricing or specifically handle turnover and cleaning. Price Labs int- integrates to Guesty. I don't think turnover BNB does. I could be wrong about that. I have to check. But okay. definitely Price Labs because the pricing is applied to like are listing on all the channels, which is great. And then with turnover BNB, do you find the cleaners or are the cleaners already like employees or signed up with with turnover BNB? Or have you already pre-selected them because you know you trust those cleaners? Because mm-hmm. I don't know. That's another thing I would think of. Yeah. So either way, so if I have a cleaner that I like, we have a cleaner that we like, we added her to we got her on turnover BNB. We had her get the app, make an account. So that's one way to do it. But Turnover BNB also has a marketplace of cleaners. And so it's a good place to shop for a cleaner and try some out when you're first getting started. You like make your checklist for your property and then you can like blast that out to the marketplace and then cleaners can choose to accept it. And then you can try them out, meet them there, see if you like them, you like their style, ask them questions about how they operate. And so it's a good place to find cleaners if you're looking for one. That's a really cool software because I, did you ever do the cleaning yourself? Like when you first launched? No, never. I knew I would hate it. I've had to do it like, <laughs> I've had to do it like Pretty one time. Once. <laughs> yeah. If you think that you're going to clean your own property, I just would say it's probably not going to last that long. <laughs> like you cleaning it. I've had to clean it like once or twice when I think when we had, right now we have like team of cleaners, which is great because if one's out, like another one can cover. But when we only had one and she got sick and it was like a snow day and her car couldn't go anywhere and I had to clean it and it took me so long and it like wasn't that good. So yeah, not for me. Definitely not. I would hate that. Mm-hmm. My one thing is like, like, I need to make sure I find and build a team. Like you said, getting a handyman, getting a cleaner, because A, I know I don't want to clean and B, I know I am not a handyman at all. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Save yourself the headache. Yeah. Save your time and yeah, just build out the team. We've covered quite a bit of these softwares and the different costs associated with setting it up and furnishings and everything like that. What are from, I guess, down on like a 
bare bones operational standpoint and furnishing standpoint up to, I guess, what a, what you guys are maybe doing now with this professional system, everything managed, all of that. What is somebody kind of looking at typically for like a setup and operational cost for running one of these Airbnbs? So setup, furnishing range pretty widely depending on the house, but I would say it's between 15 to 50K. And then the actual designer, if you use a designer, their fees are usually between 4,000 and 6,500. So as an example, you can usually furnish like a four bed, two bath for around $17,000. And then if you use a designer, add about 5K to that. And then if you want some sort of unique amenity, add about five to 10,000 five to 10,000 more. So for that four, two, you'd be all in at like $30,000. And that's your like startup furnishing fee. And then as far as like ongoing monthly costs, it's just your utilities, your softwares that you're using. So that's like an extra like 20, 40 bucks a month, depending on how many softwares you're using. Snow removal is an extra, whatever. Wait, it's like $50 on average per snow removal and happens like whatever, eight to 10 times a year depending on how Denver wants to act <laughs> that year. But yeah, just those kind of ongoing costs. And then of course your mortgage payment. And so it really does vary, but that's your upfront cost. And then you also definitely want to factor in your ongoing monthly costs of like utilities and all that good stuff. Do you have like tools that you use to help you analyze deals? Like how do you go about deciding when you're buying an Airbnb property? Yeah, really Air DNA is the biggest tool I use. And then we have a broker has a really awesome short-term rental calculator that you can plug all your numbers into and it'll spit out like your gross revenue, your cash on cash return, your monthly net cash flow. And if those numbers look good, then we go for it. But usually your gross revenue should be like 15 to 20% of your overall purchase price is a benchmark that we look for. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, Ben, I feel like we've covered a lot of very good information and we can just wrap it up a little bit. And Alexa wanted to ask you, what is the best way for people to get a hold of you, social media or phone number or whatever you care to share? And what is one thing that you would want somebody to know? Like what's the number one biggest tip that you would give to somebody wanting to do an Airbnb? Good question. I really think that the number one tip I would give someone is to find a realtor who's done this before, just because they can point you in the right direction as far as legislation. But then also they, if they're a brokerage that specializes in short-term rentals, they have vendor lists for you. So you have per some person to fix your air conditioning and do your, you know, your sewer clean out and all that stuff, a, a full vendor list. They have connections to designers and lenders and handyman. And you just get a wealth of information from going with a brokerage and a realtor that specializes in doing this. Residential realtors just don't, it takes a lot of time to figure the, all this stuff out. And so many don't know. So many just Yeah. And know. just collect all the information. <laughs> no. It's a lot of information and it's always changing. And so going with a brokerage that specializes with this will, will save you a lot of headache and confusion. Good. And how yeah. can people get a hold of you? My Instagram is at Alexa Ferg Realtor. So you can reach out to me there. I want to give my phone number, but that's the best way to reach me. Yeah, that's <laughs> a normal thing. Start getting blasted with phone calls. <laughs> I'm always like, here, take my phone number. And then I get all these spam calls. I'm like, oh, yeah. Everybody. <laughs> let's start on the gram. Let's, let's slide into my DMs. We'll take it from there. <laughs> there we go. Perfect. Love it. Love it. 
Wow. Thank you so much, Alexa. It was great chatting with you. Huge wealth of knowledge here, especially in the Denver area. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you guys so much for having me. Hi, thank you for tuning into the Stealth Wealth Podcast. You can find out more information in the show notes as well as find our contact information. Please feel free to reach out to either Ben or myself and let us know what you want to hear on future episodes. As always, your continued support is much appreciated. So please leave us a review and hit that notification button to hear our next episode.